Hello and welcome to Jonathan's Verdicts. I'm Jonathan Simeone. The title of this episode is Thoughts After the Nevada Democratic Debate. The verdict for this episode is that was quite a night. <laughs> um, before, as always, I don't have a script and I don't edit these episodes. They are just a chance for me to talk about what is on my mind. In this episode, I anticipate talking about the question over delegates and determining the ultimate Democratic nominee, Elizabeth Warren's campaign, the debate itself, of course, a highlight in there, the issues around Bloomberg, and whatever else happens to come out. <laughs> With that being said, let's discuss the delegates. The last question of the debate, to me, was the most telling. And sadly, the coverage of this in the aftermath of the debate has been predictably inaccurate and biased. The last question of the debate was, should the person with the most delegates at the convention be the Democratic nominee? Since most people believe the person with the most delegates at the convention based on the votes of the people will be Bernie Sanders, he said yes, and everyone else on stage said no. In the aftermath of the debate, people have been making the argument it is being made in newspaper editorials, on political television programs, that Sanders' position is, a hypocr is hypocritical, that Sanders is reversing his position from 2016, where he thought the superdelegates um, should have a role and could change the outcome at the convention. Here's the part that the people who accuse Sanders of hypocrisy are leaving out or getting wrong. And that is the rules this time are different because Bernie Sanders worked to change the rules. What's different this time is that the superdelegates do not have a vote in the first round of convention voting. They only vote in the second round if nobody has a majority of delegates. Uh, and by the way, superdelegates are basically highbrow Democratic Party officials, members of Congress, former presidents, uh, members of the DNC. I don't know everyone who qualifies, but that's what it is. So this debate is actually critical because it's going to be very hard for any candidate in a very crowded race uh, to get to the majority of the necessary delegate counts to be the nominee. Hillary Clinton did not have a number, the number necessary because Sanders won 23 states 
in 2016. But Bernie nominated Clinton by acclamation and despite rumors to the contrary, did many campaign events for her around the country. So the question of the delegates is a very, very simple one. Is the person with the votes, the most votes of the American public, going to be the Democratic Party's nominee or not? When you cut through the noise, that is the seminal question. Because the other candidates could say, look, in the interest of party unity, in the interest of representing the will of the voters, uh, I want an, a number of delegates to vote uh, for uh, Bernie, assuming he has the most delegates. So he has the number and we don't have the party fight. Also, somebody could do what Sanders did and move to uh, uh, move to put his not accept his nomination by acclamation. Uh, so, what the other candidates are saying essentially is that in the first round of voting, they should all have the right to keep Bernie from having a majority of delegates even if he has literally tens of thousands of more votes from the American public nationwide. And in the second round, party insiders should have the right to then essentially override the will of the people and pick someone else. So let me be really, really clear about this. If someone else other than uh, Bloomberg is the nominee legitimately, I will vote for and support that person. Bloomberg is a separate category, which I'll get to later. On the other hand, though, if Bernie is supported by more people than any other candidate and is not the Democratic Party's nominee because the superdelegates in the second round of voting override the will of the people. I will not vote for whoever the Democratic Party's nominee becomes. There's a principle of democracy. There's a principle of fairness that has to be upheld here. And that's just where this is. Uh, this is not hypocrisy on Bernie Sanders' part because in 2016, courting superdelegates in the first round of voting was a part of the process. That's how it worked. The rules this time do not bring the superdelegates in until the second round of voting. But Bernie Sanders has been clear all along that we shouldn't have superdelegates, that the will of the people should determine the outcome. That was his position in 16, and that is his position in 20. 
In 16, he was playing by the rules of the party. In 20, the party will commit suicide, essentially, if it ignores the will of the people and on the second round of balloting allows the insiders to override the will of the people. A lot of people like me simply will not vote for the Democrat under those terms. If that's, if that's the way the party wants to go, um, then that's where we are as a country. At some point, democracy uh, must matter. Now, I want to discuss um, Elizabeth Warren, because there's a lot of interesting things here. Um, Warren, just from a, a strictly tactical position, won the debate on Wednesday. She was strong. She was commanding. Uh, she was the dominant presence. Uh, nobody can dispute that. And predictably, her campaign has raised $5 million since the debate. So in about, you know, 36 hours or so. The problem, though, for me is this is another example of why Elizabeth Warren, the candidate, does not equal Elizabeth Warren, uh, the talent. The, the, the parts are greater than the, the sum of the parts put together. Uh, and when the obituary of Elizabeth Warren's campaign is written – Unfortunately, it is going to turn out that her lifelong inability to be consistent was really what did her in in this case. And what I mean is Elizabeth Warren was a Republican until the mid-90s. Now, that, that's just a fact. It's just, that's just being real. She wrote a book with her daughter – the first version came out in 2003. Uh, I read it. Um, I can't remember the name of it now. Um, I do have a review of it on my website. Uh, and in the book, she supported a lot of policies, school, charter schools and the like, that she just doesn't support now. And this trend has followed her into the campaign in the sense that originally she was with Bernie. She was all on Medicare for all. But then she realized that, oh, uh, I'm getting killed for that. The Medicare for all voters are really with Bernie. So she pivoted to, well, I'm for this three-year plan, and then in year four, we'll think about introducing Medicare for all. And the thing is, if you believe that health care is a question of morality, that, which those of us who support Medicare for all do, that's just not going to work for us. And so... She wound up making nobody happy on that issue. And that was the beginning of her downfall. So then 
she was going to be the candidate, the, the, the women's candidate. And, and that didn't work. People didn't really rally behind that. And so then she was going to be the one who could unite the party around uh, an anti-corruption platform. And she came in fourth in New Hampshire. So that didn't work. And so now she's going to be the fighter. Uh, and she's going to take a, try to take a hunk out of everyone else. So she's completely <laughs> reversed positions from I'm the one who can unite the party to I'm the one who, in one answer, I think literally attacked everyone else on stage. And that's the problem. At the New Hampshire debate, she criticized uh, all the candidates. She said, everyone but me and Amy, Amy Klobuchar, has a pack on their behalf, and we don't. And then she came in f uh, fourth in New Hampshire, and now she has a super pack that is spending a million dollars in Iowa, or excuse me, a million dollars in Nevada, and a million dollars in South Carolina on her behalf. And we know from FEC filings that uh, at the end of January, she had about two million bucks on hand. So without the pack, she would have had nearly an impossible time funding a campaign. So when it was convenient for her, now she wants a pack. Now she, now she has a pack. And in, in attempting to justify this change in position that literally took place in a matter of days, her first answer was, well, all the men and the billionaires have packs, so Amy and I, you know, can't be outdone. Uh, that was a terrible response because her having a pack has nothing to do with sexism. She has a pack for a very simple reason. Nobody was giving her campaign money, relatively speaking. And she came in third in Iowa, fourth in New Hampshire, was polling in single digits in Nevada and South Carolina and most of the Super Tuesday states. Her campaign was failing. That's why she has a pack. It has nothing to do with sexism. And that is just setting it up so when she doesn't do well, they can pivot back to, well, it was sexist. Now, for comparison's sake, uh, Bernie Sanders started this Our Revolution, which is a pack. But here's some key differences that have to be noted. Our Revolution is a pack, a political action committee. Elizabeth Warren's new pack is what's called a super pack. There is a critical difference between an ordinary pack and a super pack, and that is that 
the super PAC can collect unlimited amounts of money from individual sources. Whereas a conventional PAC, like our revolution, is limited to $5,000 from any particular individual uh, who wants to contribute. The other thing, because of when Elizabeth Warren's super PAC is, was created, nobody will know anything about who's funding it until long after Nevada and South Carolina and Super Tuesday have taken place. Now, admittedly, our revolution does not disclose all of its donors. I think there's something like 1.5% of them or something that aren't disclosed. And that is wrong. I'm going to just say that right away. Every PAC should disclose all of its donors. And in a perfect world, we wouldn't have them at all. But for comparison's sake, and you can look all this up on opensecrets.org, a website that tracks this stuff. Uh, Our revolution is not a PAC dedicated to Bernie Sanders. This is another critical difference. Uh, Our revolution has supported candidates all around the country and has weighed in on ballot questions all around the country. As of December 31st, uh, our revolution, this cycle, uh, had spent about $8,000. And it had about uh, something like uh, $62,000 in the bank. Now, we don't know what happened in January, okay? That's just admitting what we knew and don't know. But our revolution had $62,000 in the bank. Elizabeth Warren's super PAC has already spent $2 million on her behalf. Now, the other argument is that other PACs like uh, 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 other groups like Sunrise and uh, Justice Organize, uh, which is affiliated with the Justice Democrats, are also working on Sanders' behalf. But here's the thing. Those organizations have endorsed Bernie Sanders, and they are not specifically dedicated to his campaign. A vastly different situation than Elizabeth Warren's private super PAC that is spending millions already. So again, it's just... It's just a different thing. Now, I don't, you know, it's playing by the rules, okay? But to decry PACs for so long as Warren did and then literally flip on a dime and start doing almost the worst setup under the system, dark money would be worse. Uh, and then misrepresenting the support that Sanders gets from organizations when compared to what she's getting, it's just dishonest. It's just a dishonest thing to do. And that's where I think, you know, Warren is for people who believe in the progressive ideals, uh, 
Warren is just too politician-y. She's not honest enough. She's not authentic enough. That's really what this boils down to. Now, we couldn't have a discussion like this without discussing Bloomberg. Uh, I have been watching debates since 1988. I'm a political junkie, <laughs> so I can't even count how many debates I've seen. I have never seen somebody, especially when you compare it with the hype, so unprepared, uh, so just entitled, uh, deliver such a terrible performance. When you consider the, the significance, that is the worst debate performance I have ever seen. Uh, specifically, this discussion has come up in the aftermath of the debate. Uh, even the judge in the New York Times today, and by today I mean Friday, January 21st, criticizes uh, Bloomberg. The judge in the stop and frisk has an, uh, an op-ed in the Times today criticizing Bloomberg's description of what happened in the case. But the judge, who acknowledges that she is white, says it is his policy wasn't racist. He's not racist. He was empty-headed, I think is what she says. But the thing is, people who want to make this argument, including the judge and commentators on TV and members of the Democratic Party, then pivot back to, but he did all this philanthropy that benefited minorities and minority communities. But in all of these discussions, they omit an honest discussion of the comments. Now, I want to reiterate, I am a white male. So, you know, perhaps I'm not the best bearer of, of this message. You know, I'm not, okay? But, but I, I think it's worth having. Um, they leave out the fact, the comments that he made in support, particularly those at the Aspen Institute, and I think that's where they came from, but where he says 95% of murders are committed by minorities, young minority men. That is not an empty-headed thing. And that is not misunderstanding the impact of stop and frisk. That is flat out racist and it's factually incorrect, which for someone who says their candidacy is based so much on their ability to collect and analyze data is laughable. But you have to, 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 to make a public statement that 95% of the murderers are brown and black men between 16 and 25. That is racist. That is racist. When you talk about redlining, which was the practice where the federal government refused to lend money to people who wanted to live or who had to live <laughs> in 
segregated black neighborhoods that the government was, in, you know, systematically creating segregation because the government's policies were racist. And you at all mention the ending of redlining in relation to the financial crisis. Uh, that is racist. That's not being empty-headed. It's not misapplying. You don't come to conclusions like this unless you are racist. And no matter how the old white centrists want to play it, that's the reality of it. You don't have this racist view that violent crime is almost exclusively done by black and brown men unless you are a racist, especially since it's totally not true. <laughs> and the question of the women who have been sexually uh, harassed, uh, discriminated against, subjected to crude and lewd commentary. You know, I mentioned this before, but he's not releasing them from the NDAs, the non-disclosure agreements, <laughs> because he can't afford for them to tell their stories. It's obvious. And this idea that Bernie is somehow less palatable than someone who is just as, you know, crude and crass as, Bloom as Trump. Now, admittedly, Trump, uh, Bloomberg has never been accused of rape, to my knowledge. And that is a big deal. That is a big difference. But is the Democratic Party in the era of Me Too, really going to stoop so low to say, well, our guy's okay because he didn't rape anybody? Is that really the standard the Democratic Party is going to hang its hat on? That is mind-boggling. And if Bloomberg was not a billionaire, if Bloomberg could not put more money into his campaign than any other presidential campaign in the history of this country has had, uh, nobody would tolerate those answers. And the double standard should not be tolerated now. Uh, the last thing, because this is the longest episode I've ever recorded, is I want to get into the discussion that Bloomberg and Sanders had over socialism. Because again, the, the media, the pundits who are funded by the corporations and the wealthy um, are representing this as that was a good line for Bloomberg. That's where he did well. Now, first of all, as Sanders correctly pointed out, calling him a communist was an inaccurate, dirty, cheap shot. But the thing the pundits can't hear because they don't want to and because, truthfully, they've never been on food stamps, they've never been without heat, they've never struggled for 
uh, health insurance, okay? The thing they can't grasp is that when Bernie Sanders says we have socialism in this country, but we have it for corporations and we have it for the wealthy, that's what resonates with his base. Why? Because it's true. Amazon pays no federal taxes, hasn't for years. I filed my taxes this week. Uh, I paid several thousand dollars in taxes. <laughs> Let's just say I am not Jeff Bezos. Okay? I am not Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I'm not Amazon. So when Bernie says we have corporate socialism, that's absolutely true. When Bernie says we have socialism for the wealthy, and you look at the fact that Warren Buffett admits he pays less than his secretary, that's true. The only thing we don't do is have the kind of democratic socialism that guarantees people health care. But we have all kinds of corporate and oligarchy socialism. And the pundits can't see that. They can't see the way that resonates with people who support Sanders. And when Sanders says, you didn't just earn your money. All of the people who work for you contributed to your earning your money. That is 1,000% accurate. That's what resonates with people because they know it's true. And because they know part of the reason Bloomberg made his fortune is by screwing them out of benefits and wages. And that's what people know. They know that from their own experience. The pundit class can't relate. So they think, that's a great answer. He brought up communism. No, it's not a great answer. It's insulting to the working people of this country. It's insulting to the people who work hard and can't go to the doctor or can't get child care or can't send their children to college. And this is why... All of the punditry isn't working this time. This is why Bernie is going to have the most delegates. And this is why, ultimately, we are going to have Medicare for all in this country. We are going to have free college in this country. We are going to have environmental policies that protect us from the greed of the fossil fuel companies and save the planet. All of these things are going to happen. The moral question is, how many people are going to die or be left out of the American dream before that happens? That's the question. But the punditry class, the oligarchs, the media moguls, their time is coming. Their grip on this country is going to end. The days when they can simply buy the elections and tell everybody to shut up and go sit down, it's coming to an end. 
if they rig the system and survive another election, maybe they will. Maybe they will. I don't think so, but they might. But their day is coming because morality is on the side of Sanders and the side of democratic socialism because that's the policy perspective that works for the people. And by the way, that's another reason why when Elizabeth Warren says she's a capitalist, that's another reason why those of us really committed to this agenda could never really back her candidacy. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode of Jonathan's Verdicts. I can't wait for the Nevada caucuses tomorrow, and I'll talk to you again soon.